Hello, and welcome to Participate, a true public podcast. I'm Mariah C. Kaminsky. I'm here with our managing director, Shonda McDill, who is joining us from the road to Boston. Uh, Shonda, do you want to talk about where you're headed? Um, it sounds kind of like depressing, but I'm headed to Harbor for a crisis summit. Uh, a, a, a ton of you know managing directors. We've been called to ART by Kelvin Dinkins to discuss uh, the American theater from the executive managing director seat and trying to kind of, he's curated somewhat of a think tank. Some of our situations are more dire than others. Um, You know, we laugh about calling it a crisis summit, but the reality is there, as we know, there are a ton of theaters facing crisis, including in some ways the public theater with some of the things that we are facing, but we are hopeful and we're going to gather so we can find some solutions together and figure out ways to collaborate and find our way out of this circumstance and into a new way of creating in the way that we all love. So that's that's where I'm headed. So glad you're there. And today we are so excited to welcome two very special members of the public family, playwrights TJ Young and Maura V. Harris. Hi, my name is TJ Young. I am a playwright and dramaturg, currently an associate professor of dramaturgy at Carnegie Mellon University. I'm originally from Houston, Texas, and I'm so excited to be here. Hi, uh, I'm Maura V. Harris, and I'm a playwright and an educator living in my hometown of Pittsburgh. I wrote the Bergerac simulation from a few years back, and I'm part of the Writers Collective at PPT. Um, And TJ and I are co-representatives for the Dramatists Guild in Pittsburgh. Thank you so much for being here. Um, So on this podcast, we've been spending our time digging into the core values of the Pittsburgh Public Theater uh, to see how our peers and colleagues and collaborators like you interpret these pillars. Um, We're working with artistic excellence, community relevance, attracting and retaining talent and fiscal responsibility, um, both on the institutional level and as individuals. Uh, And I'm going to pause there and please take it away more of. So I transitioned into playwriting from acting and receptionisting, um, and uh, I I think the like big moment for me was I had like been dabbling in writing and I had a play in like a local ten minute play festival, um, and it was the first time I really felt like I was kind of valued in the theater, like I wasn't like. Um, sort of disposable. (laughs) Um, And so like from there, I was like all in like, oh, I got to learn as much about this as I can. I'm going to go to grad school Um, and haven't looked back. Can I ask, I know we've got a lot of questions to get to, but TJ, you had mentioned that you started writing plays for you to be in, Mm -hmm. right? And I'm I'm curious, really, like let's write the things that we want to do. And I'm curious if that keeps you writing and also Maura, what keeps you writing? Uh, I went to a predominantly white institution in high school and I was always getting bit parts and it was like I was on my way out and I remember the tech director at the time said, well, I'm so sad that you are graduating. We could have done Lily in the Field next year. And I was like, so you're telling me that there's no other roles that I could possibly be in, right? So I originally started writing so that way I could write roles that someone like me, I'm a black man, could step into that didn't necessarily highlight my race because at the time those were the only things I felt like people wanted me for, right? Um, And so I originally started writing with that in mind. And then I transitioned to be like, okay, if I am going to speak about race, what is my 
what is my um my view on it what is my perspective on it how does that change but also how can i still provide those roles for people of color so that way they can step into roles that aren't about their identity all the time and i I got really great practice at that because i went to i got my undergrad at the university of texas at san antonio that doesn't have a theater program but we had a really small theater group called the bargain basement players and we called that because we couldn't afford shows (laughs) it really did start from this desire to be able to step in uh, provide a, a vehicle for people to step into that they could just like participate in the art that i saw a lot of my white colleagues being able to participate in the art right now, I will say that my art has gotten uh, political uh, since then, but there are I, I like to tell people, I'm like, if my stuff is about race, it's about race. If it's not about race, it's not about race. Like there's usually a clear delineation in my work. I have a quick question to like interject in that that has to do with Mariah kind of outlining the pillars. And it really has to do with artistic excellence. Right. In the context of trying to create a world that doesn't exist for you. Um, and even in the context more of trying to just create a world that may not necessarily be dealing with race, but every piece of art is dealing with some sort of response to something that we're experiencing in life. And therefore, for me, it becomes political or social in some way. Um, I guess I'm curious about how heavily you were concerned then with artistic excellence and how you view it now, or what is the way in which you judge artistic excellence, particularly when you're like, we're the bargain basement crew, right? Like this is what we're making the best out of what we have. How did you measure artistic excellence then? And how do you measure it now? Yeah. I mean, then when I first joined the bargain basement players, it was like a total of 30 people would see a show across three, three performances. Right. And so for me, artistic excellence was like, how do we grow this audience to let people on campus know that there are a group of theater makers on campus? So when I left, our last performance had 415 people there, I believe. Yeah, and that was like in a, in a two and a half year time span. So I was like, I'm good. I did the thing. Right. And now it is about how am I providing to the conversation in a way that I feel is uniquely my voice, but also furthering it. Right. It's never about if I'm going to write a piece that is about race, it's never about how can I just grab onto the thing that is hot right now and like recapitulate the thing that people are already saying it is how can I use the art form to further the conversation in a way that I haven't necessarily seen? And I had to separate um, number of productions or reviews or any of those other things from artistic excellence. And uh, I picked up this, um, ironically, it's like a lyric from a Duncan Sheik song. Um, But the last lyric, I can't remember the name of the song, but it's like, if you change one heart, you change the world. So I'm like, as long as I get to one person in the audience and they walk away saying, I felt this way or I'm thinking about this a different way or you help me experience that. That's when I'm like, okay, my art has done what it's supposed to do. Um, So that's how I measure it now. Um, I was just going to say, I I can really identify with um, TJ's experience experience of like when I was acting I never got to be funny on stage like as like an ingenuity looking girl and that drove me crazy um because now as an artist I think of comedy as like my main language and it wasn't until I started writing those roles for other people to do that I got to actually like play in that world um and then like I I think to answer the question about excellence like I think for me, there there's an element of craft, right? That you've like spent time getting like 
good at doing this thing, whatever it is. And to me, I define good with plays as like that someone is in control, <laughs> um, right? Like even if it is chaotic and sprawling, like there's a method to the madness. Um, but also like what teacher is saying, like that the person had something to say and there was like a, a soul and a heart to this thing that you experienced um, with them. To me, that those are the plays I always think are excellent. Yeah, if, you, if you're walking away two days later and you're still thinking about it, then I'm like, okay, good. You talk about comedy, Maura, and I know humor is something both of you use in your plays. Can you just talk a little bit more about that as like humor as a vocabulary right now? Because I, I would argue that both of you work with political material. I mean, for, for me, like if you have a woman making jokes on stage, like it's inherently become a political thing because people are, for whatever reason, still not expecting that, even though like women are the funniest people I know. Sorry, TJ. Um <laughs> Um, but I think for me, like humor is so disarming for an audience, um, right? It, it sort of like establishes trust right away if you can make them laugh and they're like, okay, it's going to be like an okay time in the theater tonight. Um, and then you can like hit them with whatever, um, right? Uh, and I'm always sort of like interested in like where that boundary, you know, stops, um, right? I, like I think... Uh, I have a play about eating disorders that is a very funny play, <laughs> um, but uh, it's it's also like a really difficult play for some people to watch, right? Um, and I I think that is like challenging and interesting. Um, so that's that's why I use comedy so often. What about you, TJ? The disarming uh, part of it that you said, that's exactly why I use it. Um, I remember seeing a production of House of Yes, where people were laughing at the assassination scene. And I remember sitting there being like, why are people laughing? And then I remember because like the way that the production was staged, there was no room for laughter outside of that. Right. So the awkwardness made people laugh. So I was like, let me give people a reason to laugh. So that way, when I want them to just sit with something, they feel like they have the capacity. They're not, you know, pent up and needing that release. They're able to just like take the hit. Not only that, but it gets everyone in the room on the same page that it does allow for a level of trust because they say, okay, they have the potential to like pull me out of this with something funny. The person starts crying next to you. You are then affected more by their tears in the same way because you're like, we laugh together. We can actually cry together. Yeah. It puts it into your body. Absolutely. Like on a, a practical level, you're like creating like actual heat and like warmth between the people. Oh my God. I feel like what you're describing is artistic excellence. And I think about it a lot now in programming because I feel like the world being as it is, people are hungry for comedy. I mean, everybody loves a good drama now and again, but I think particularly right now. Um, and I remember when I was a young pup, like making theater and trying to be political and it was like, so teaching people lessons and it was so not interesting. Um, but I remember describing it as like, give a little sugar with the medicine. Right. Yeah. I love the idea of putting it in your body too. I, I also love that. Like my first experience of your work, TJ was the recent playtime reading at the public of we fly. And I just remember like, uh, I think exactly the way in which you all are describing the need for humor, but also how it hits is so critical right now. I don't remember laughing so much in recent history at any show. Uh, and also, though, being like, ouch, like, ooh, 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 you know, at the same time. So it was, like, refreshing to be able to have truths dosed out with humor 
and then like leaving and reflecting on like what was really being said and what did we share in the room and who laughed at what um you know and you can't help but like feel like you're a part of this communal experience when there's such visceral response to the work happening kind of in this unbridled fashion so one thank you for the work question around divorcing artistic excellence from numbers mm. um, because it, because we talk about community relevance as one of the pillars and each of you have taught at various levels if you're writing something and none of your students come or all of them come how do you do you also divorce attendance and numbers from relevance like how do you how do you judge whether your work is relevant if in fact you divorce that from numbers as well. I, I think that relevance can often be difficult to uh, identify because a lot of times the institutions that are uh, vehicles for theater haven't been relevant in the communities that the theater that the American theater is trying to make now has tried to reach in the past, right? So if we're looking at community relevance, we also have to look at what are the communities that the theater has touched before? Or what are the communities that the theater is trying to reach? And what are the avenues that they have tried to reach them, right? It's like, you can't just reach out to the um, inner city youth organizations whenever there's a play that happens to be about inner city youth, right? How do we get them involved from the beginning and say, yes, we tell stories about your experience, but we also tell stories about other people's experiences that can expand the horizons of, of you as an individual, which is what theater was meant to do, right? Um, I, I think that when we look at numbers especially at uh, as as new playwrights right we're looking at it as is this play effective right and we understand that different markets are going to sell differently but at the end of the day the importance of being earnest at some point in time was a new play right uh true west at some point in time was a new play and i'm almost positive the first time true west went up i i bet there weren't sold out houses you know what i mean but it's about can we try this thing so that way, if there are 12 people who go out and evangelize this play, that they will spread that and then someone else will read it. And that's how these things kind of kind of pick up. Right. Um, I look at things as, as like the the like lowercase C community, which is like our local community and then like uppercase C community, which is the American theater. Right. It can be relevant in the American theater as a whole and the way that we want it to change, but that doesn't necessarily represent the community that the institutions that we're working in right now reach. So it's like, it's like really hard to balance those things. You're shedding gems right now uh, on some critical things, because I think sometimes we think this, the world centers around what we create, but there's whole groups of people who don't even know who Tennessee Williams is. Like they don't even know what you're talking about in the context of the world that we've created in American theater um, and how do we make it relevant to them if that's our desire to. Yeah. We've also talked in here about artists, audiences, and the form, right? That that's what regional theater was built to serve were those three groups and they're different. They're different serving the form and uh, writing and producing a form 
stretching play is not necessarily something that the audience is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, more curious what you think about this numbers, numbers and artistic excellence and how they relate. I mean, I obviously want people to come to the play. <laughs> um, I think that I want, I want more people to come to play and more different people to come to the play. And I think that, you know, we all operate in a world where we know what plays and playwrights are hot, but I think maybe the audience that I really want in the room are the people that don't know the difference and are here to try something new with us, right? Like you talked about like trying out a a new play that could become a classic. And I think that that requires an audience that's ready to try something new out. Um, And so I'm, I'm interested in seeking those people with my plays, I guess I would say. While we're talking about communities and reaching people, I do think both of you are really specifically poised as educators, also on a national level with the Dramatist Guild, and also as you know, representatives and participants of the public theater as the Playwrights Collective. Um, I'm curious, like focusing on students and your work as teachers, what is the relationship between writing your own plays, moving along your own trajectory, having momentum, and also trying to inspire, empower, um, give young people skills to do the same thing? Is that symbiotic? Can you only do one at a time? Are they different hats? How does that work for you? I think like something I've learned about both writing and teaching is that like, it feels like that well might run dry, but it it doesn't, right? It replenishes itself. You have new ideas and new students in front of you and you just keep going. Um, I think the hardest thing for me to balance is like um, teaching rules and then teaching people how to break rules in playwriting, um, right? You, you want to establish like what a plot is, right? But my plays like very rarely follow an Aristotelian perfect plot. So making room for students to experiment too while kind of teaching them the basics, um, I think is what makes it like interesting and exciting for me, but also really challenging. There's an element, at least for me, where I'm like, who can I, who am I to tell you how to do this thing if I'm not actively doing this thing, right? Like. We are, as educators, we're preparing people to step into the future of the American theater, but we can't speak to the future of it if we're not actively in it either and saying, like, this is how things are shifting. And unless we have that real world experience, because I found that that's what students really want to know is like, how do you do this thing? What does it look like when you get a new contract? And, you know, I've had plenty of students say, like, hey, I got my first contract. Can you look at it for me? Uh, Luckily, I get to say, like, if you're a member of the Dramatist Guild, they can look at it for you. But <laughs> but also, it's still nice to be able to say, like, yeah, this is a situation that I came up with, uh, came up against three months ago. This is how I navigated it. Or these are the people I'm in conversation with. I see your work. How can I help you get in contact with them? Stuff like that, right? It, you have to be in practice to do it, I think. And also just how to speak to each other and collaborate with each other, I think, is a thing I spend so much time teaching. Easier said than done, though. I think about this as a director, too, right? Like a huge part of your process is in isolation. So learning how to talk with one another and be in community um, 
Yeah, I find that fascinating. I also have a question that it feels kind of unfair, but the way I hear you both speak about your students, it feels like you're coming from such a place of abundance. And I think there is um, a crisis of scarcity thinking in the American theater. And I'm wondering how you maintain that, right? Like bringing people up behind you um, and knowing that there is enough space for all of us and all of our students, all of our stories. I mean, I, I want to see plays that I didn't write, you know, um, like I want to see TJ's plays be successful um, and I want to see my students plays be successful um, in whatever way that you know means to them. Um, I also just like for me, like being in theater in school gave me so much as a person. Um, and so I always think about like teachers I've had in the past and, you know, the time they devoted to me when they could have been doing, you know, their art or whatever it was they did. Um, and I, I try to like pay that forward. There's literally thousands of theaters in the, in America and someone somewhere in like a small little corner of Wisconsin would be like, I read your play and I love it. And they will do it. You know what I mean? We think about the American theaters like the big institutions, which is absolutely cornerstone of it. But we also have to think about like the people who have the storefront theaters who sit 60, you know, and they're doing great work, too. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. Speaking of contracts, we're in a moment of the strike. Um, and I'm just really curious what you, you know, for people listening, like writer Strike 101, both of you are involved in national organizations. What is the impact of the strike? Why is it important? And what impact is it having on the American theater or even, you know, the 60 seat theater? Um, would you be able to like explain that in shorthand for those who may not understand? I think between the two of us, we can. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> what, what I you know, think is important about the writer's strike currently is as far as I know, it's the first labor movement to address AI and like what that's taking away from workers. Um, so, you know, the potential for AI is to be writing scripts in Hollywood is maybe far off, but like not that far off. Mm -hmm. um, and so one of the main things they're trying to protect is like um, the ability to get paid. Your script is used to train an AI to write a script. Right. Um, not even like baseline, maybe don't hire robots to do things that that people can do amazingly well. Um, yeah. Do, I don't. TJ, do you want to add? Yeah. I, I think also it's the idea of time. Right. Like a, a huge thing about the writer's strike is these ideas like mini rooms where they're like write us a whole series of television, a whole season of television in eight weeks, as opposed to something that would take you. 12 to 15 to 16 weeks before, right? And then they're paying them a fraction of the cost. And then they're saying, after this mini room, we might pick it up, right? And then they just take the content and they go and make it. I think this ties actually into the, the new play development cycle. How about good writing takes time. Good writing takes, okay, we tried this idea. Wait, I heard it come out your mouth. Let me go back and fix it, right? Where before writers were on set all the time, fixing things in between scenes, fixing things in between takes, where now they're just like, you wrote the thing, goodbye. Yeah, I think it I think it also kind of connects to theater in that like sometimes the things that sound really glamorous and exciting to you as an artist getting to do something are like the places where you can get taken the most advantage of as someone who's doing work and, and wants to be paid for it.
is the Dramatists Guild? For those of us listening uh, who may not know, you know, what these communities are, can you can you tell us what the Dramatists Guild is and what they do? So uh, playwrights work independently, right? So we're not a union. The Dramatists Guild is not a union because playwrights are basically uh, independent contractors at every theater that they work at, right? Um, there might be, if your play is published, sure, your publishing house is handling the rights. But at the end of the day, you are an individual entity. You are your own company. The Dramatists Guild is a guild of writers who basically create industry standards, right? The Dramatists Guild sets the standard for like, this is what a contract should look like. This is uh, how much you should be getting paid in these instances. This is what a, uh, this is how big your name should be on a poster. Yeah. And just to um, clarify, like uh, playwrights own their intellectual property. That's the big difference between us and like the screenwriters and why they're separate organizations. Um, so the Dramatist Guild is sort of designed to protect our IP, as well as uh, librettists and composers. We also help each other uh, find submissions for for opportunities. We also uh, have uh, events throughout the city. Like we, the Dramatist Guild, went and saw Dance Nation at Carnegie Mellon University last semester um, as a group, right? Um, we there's a program called Playwrights Welcome, which the public participates in, along with other uh, theaters across the country, where if you're a member of the, of the Dramatist Guild, you want to go see a play and you have your nice little card, you can show up that day. They'll be like, here's a discounted seat. Right. So the Dramatist Guild is also this like wide sort of breadth of a of a of an organization that can help you out in any instance. I would love to hear you know, a little bit about how you all feel the Playwrights Collective has impacted your work. You know, are, are Playwrights Collectives of this kind and others important for playwrights and why? Um, it seems like you have so many other spaces. What is unique about, you know, this space in the Playwrights Collective and how it benefits you at a regional theater? For me, up until being a part of the Writers Collective, my presence in theaters always felt super temporary, um, right? That I was I was there for, you know, the read through and then I would disappear back home and come back for the production or I would just there for a weekend reading and then I had to go back. And, and the Writers Collective has just been like a really nice way to have like an artistic home in Pittsburgh and feel like, you know, my, my presence as a playwright isn't temporary. Like there's there's a a place to go to on Zoom. Um, yeah, I, the co the collective for me has, I think, kind of given me permission to try things as a writer because then I can take things to a room full of people that know what I'm going for, and then they can be like, "Hey, this is why I like this, why I don't like." Right? Um, we've been together for three years now, three years. So like, they know they know who I am as a writer. I'm so grateful for the Writers Collective and you all hanging with us too over these three years. It's been a learning process, I think, for the public uh, to know how to best support writers. Uh, I think we're still learning that. Um, but I will say like my biggest dream in being here is to be a part of a vibrant theater community. And we have that here. We have amazing artists. We have an amazing like continuum of theaters here. Um, but playwrights are the beating heart of that. Thank you both so much for being here with us today. Thank you for participating in this podcast. This has been a true public podcast with me, Shonda McDill, Managing Director of the Public Theater, 
Mariah C. Kaminsky, artistic director of the Public Theater. Maura V. Harris and TJ Young, two members of the Pittsburgh Public Theater's Playwrights Collective. Join us in two weeks to hear from a true icon in the Pittsburgh Public Theater family as our director of operations and productions, the woman behind the behind the theater who makes it go, Monica Bowen. She'll join us to discuss how the work that goes on behind the scenes brings your favorite productions to life. Uh, and she knows where all the skeletons are buried. Absolutely. So that's going to be a good one. Absolutely. And I, I cannot let this end without saying to you that I love seeing your mom flying at public day. Just want to get that in as well. It's amazing. Yes, uh, you know, just real quick, I know we spoke briefly about like the lowercase c community and everything like that. And I will say that the public theater that I see now is different than the public theater that I saw in 2017 when I moved here. And it feels more inviting. It feels more open. And being able to bring my mother into town and say like, this is where I do work and feel like it was a home was uh, really special. And it actually, she cried as we left because she's like, oh, there's a place that's taking care of my baby. Um, oh, so my yeah, goodness. thank you for that. I'm not crying. You're crying. Right. Yeah, I'm not crying, you're crying. <laughs> um, TJ, thank you for that. That's like my dream. Like I tell you, I keep telling Shonda, I want kids and grandmas line dancing in the rehearsal hall. Let's do it. <laughs>